Our speaker this evening is the art historian and filmmaker Joseph Leo Kerner. Raised in Pittsburgh and in Vienna, he studied at Yale, Cambridge, Heidelberg, and Berkeley. After three years at the, at the Society of Fellows, he joined the Harvard faculty as professor of history of art and architecture and organized teaching exhibitions in conjunction with that work, which included research on the very topic we'll be hearing this evening. After teaching at the University of Frankfurt, at University College London, and at the Courtauld, he returned to Harvard in 2007. Among his many prizes are the Jan Mitchell Prize for the History of Art, which was how I first discovered his work, <laughs> when walking into the office of someone I greatly admired who had this extraordinary book on his table and said, if you read nothing else this year, this is the person you want to watch. It was worth the read. <laughs> um, Joseph is also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's been a Guggenheim Fellow. He's a member of the American Philosophical Society and a senior fellow at Harvard Society of Fellows. In 2009, he received the Andrew W. Mellon Distinguished Achievement Award. And his other speaking gigs before coming to the Boston Athenaeum have included the Slade Lectures, delivered both at Cambridge and at Oxford, and the Mellon Lectures at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. His books range across topics that include Caspar David Friedrich, Albrecht Dürer, and the topic of this evening's lecture, Bosch and Bruegel. Please join me in welcoming Joseph Kerner to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you. Thank you very much, Lizzie. And uh, for the very generous introduction, and thank you for inviting me to speak here uh, at the Athenaeum in one of the most glorious auditoriums in the world. Uh, and it's really fun to talk about Bosch. It's always a pleasure to speak about Hieronymus Bosch. He's an endlessly fascinating artist. In the original root sense of the word fascinate, fascinate, to fascinate is to bring someone under one's spell, especially through the sense of sight, through the eye. Bosch is also a hugely popular artist, and you can spot his paintings in a museum just by uh, following the crowds. Over um, a million people went to the dual exhibitions in 2016, celebrating the 500th anniversary of Bosch's death, one in Sertogenbosch and the other in Madrid. And looking over the shoulders of those people, uh, uh, staring at the Haywain, you can begin to see what draws people in, what takes them into this bizarre, interesting, fascinating world. Uh, this is probably one of the simplest of Bosch's pictures. It's called the Haywain. We don't have actually any original titles. Uh, but you can see it's a fairly straightforward, although cosmic, narrative. It begins in Eden with uh, stories about Adam and Eve, and they're all um, bad stories. Uh, and then it ends in hell. And in between, there's a question mark. But here the question mark of what lies between the beginning of history and the end of history uh, is pretty simple. It's the story of the ways in which humans have a tendency to uh, be seduced by, or fascinated, let's say, by the pleasures of the world, uh, by the seductive aspect of the world. And the world is represented here as this globe-like ball of hay, this bundle of hay, according to many both um, biblical as well as uh, Dutch proverbial expressions about the worthlessness of human uh, existence and of the world, grasping at straws or all uh, flesh is grass, those kinds of metaphors. And so all this, this tumult of people is grasping at this hay wagon, which is pulling them into uh, hell. And it's an irony because, of course, the picture is itself a kind of luxury object and an object of endless uh, worldly fascination. And so the picture, therefore, has a place for us in hell as well. Uh, and um, this is even more complex in Bosch's most infamous picture, his masterpiece, which is amongst the most visually alluring. There you see it hanging in the Prado, uh, as usual, surrounded by crowds, 
It's a brightly colored picture, uh, like no other painting of the time. It's so brightly colored and draws us in and then really puzzles us. And I can say it seems that no one agrees what this painting is actually about, what its even subject is, and no one can even agree whether what it shows is good or bad. I like to say whether what it shows is a friend or a foe. Um, but you immediately are drawn into the landscape. And one of the things about Bosch is that he usually gives these huge bird's eye views that you plunge into when you finally push your way to the front of the crowd. You see here a crowd of naked people cavorting on a kind of park-like setting. And you get drawn into the goings-on, and usually after having landed in the grassy plain, you are then uh, tempted to um, look bit by bit uh, at the uh, various details. Uh, you're, in a sense, drawn into the picture like that group of men riding strange beasts around the pool of women. It's sort of a picture of the way people are drawn also like a, around a vortex into Bosch's painting itself. And you tend to fixate on details, fascinating ones, indescribable sometimes, especially indescribable in public. How to really say what is that thing? And you find yourself even in a crowd in front of a Bosch rather lonely because only you know where you are in the picture. It's incredibly hard to say, what is this? Say, I'm looking at a carapace. You have to think even of the word, a carapace, and what are those bruised behinds doing? And, and then there's the, the bear who seems to be holding on nicely and a bird on top of. Uh, and you wonder, what is this? And you might describe, well, it's a group of humans carrying this uh, anthrop sort of this kind of shell of an insect, like as if they're ants. It's like these humans are kind of like ants carrying the thing. But it's very hard to describe it, not only because you are somewhere else in the picture than the rest of the group, but also because what it is you're looking at is very hard to say because all the objects tend to be morphing from the animal to the vegetable to the mineral so that one can't actually say this is what I am looking at, let alone this is where my eye is. And take, for example, one of the most famous of all the details of this three-part painting or triptych, this one which sometimes goes by the name of the tree man. So it's a man, sort of, he looks back towards us. It's also a tree. Uh, you can see the tree growing up around and in him, it. Uh, it's also a ship an impossible ship. You can see that it has two uh, rather leaky boats for shoes, uh, and obviously it couldn't really move forward as a ship. Maybe it's a ship of fools. Uh, but it's also, like so many of Bosch's pictures, disorienting not only in what it is and where it is, but also disorienting uh, in scale, because once one enters into the problem of what it is, one is often led into the picture into the monster, and there one confronts that uh, center, that interior, uh, an interior of a brothel, perhaps, an inn, certainly a very bad place to be, and there you find yourself um, pulled in. Now, that monstrosity, or a cousin or ancestor of that monstrosity, has uh, drawn in this etching quite a crowd. Uh, the tree man here now doesn't exist in hell, like in the triptych, but seems to be uh, somehow moored in a rather everyday landscape. It's as if from some exotic port uh, this strange ship has arrived to a life world not unlike the one that Hieronymus Bosch lived in. Uh, and there, like in a real world, people have gathered around to gawk at it on the right, a group of people like, uh, we know that in, in the Netherlands, if a, if a whale beached itself on the coast of the Netherlands, great troops of people would gather to see this colossus. And it's almost like a natural colossus. Uh, and also, uh, at the lower part of the picture are a group of what I like to think of as experts. There's, the experts have arrived. There's a painter to paint the monstrosity. 
on the left. There's an astronomer to make sense of the monstrosity because monsters in this period, when they came about, when they were found, when they were born, were believed to be omens and you could tell what a monster meant by calculating the moment of its appearance. So you need an astronomer to look at the stars and try and figure it out. And then there's the strange character in the middle with a fox. I think he's a fabulist, a sort of Aesop-like figure. Anyway, maybe somebody to write about the monster. But certainly art historians have written a lot about Bosch's monster. And um, for example, they say that it might be a, a pun on the Dutch word for um, a knot hole of a tree or burl of a tree. I shall, shall not say it in public, uh, but that's one of the many meanings of the work that is given by we art historians, by our, ourselves art historians, uh, as we try to make sense of them, try to make uh, sense of this kind of peculiarity. But what this tree man is at this stage of the history of Bosch is it is a Bosch. It is a monstrosity that one can attribute to Hieronymus Bosch and that the artist and his public would have known is a particular kind of thing that Bosch is good at. And we know that uh, this is the case because we actually have Bosch's drawing after which the et uh, et uh, etching was made maybe a hundred years after it was produced. And the artist probably had the drawing right before him as he made this engraving. And so it's very interesting portrait of the reception of Bosch in the period after, long after his death. Uh, it's as if Hieronymus Bosch himself is now a monstrosity, a kind of obscure enigma that you have to understand. And I, what I hope to show tonight is that it's maybe even more than that, that the tree man is in fact not just a work by Bosch, but is an obscure, a cryptic, a kind of knowing, in-the-know self-portrait of the artist. But I'll get to that in a bit. In any case, this uh, interesting uh, etching testifies to the lively interest in the work of Hieronymus Bosch, um, an artist who, almost from the moment of his death, was associated with producing strange, uh, obscure, deliberately obscure things. Uh, an Italian traveler called him the inventor of things fantastical and bizarre. And here you see a later portrait, not based probably on any actual self-portrait, but around the ears buzz of the artist buzz various creatures of the kind that he made. Um, now, I'll say at once something about Bosch, but it's probably true, it's in a way true of most of the artists that are of his culture. We have no manifestos from the artist. So we, unlike the voluble world of contemporary art in which artists are constantly telling us what they mean and what they're up to, we have no record of what Bosch meant by his work. We also don't have any contemporary criticism we don't have people interpreting Bosch and, and leaving behind an understanding of what they, uh, what, how they understood the work of Hieronymus Bosch. But we do have, uh, despite the, the paucity of documents, we do have quite unusually a few very eloquent texts about the artist dating from around 1550, 1560s, so we're talking about 40 years after his death, but they, this, one of them reaches back to Bosch's day because it was written by the son of the owner of this picture, a Spaniard who brought the picture back with him, uh, back to Spain, and who interprets this and other works very, I think, knowingly as works about the nature of good and evil, and he calls them uh, works that are b um, about ethics, about the how and why of human behavior. And I think that's a very good description. And in fact, if, there's, if anybody really wants to kind of get into the world of Hieronymus Bosch, this picture, the so-called Seven Deadly Sins, is probably the best way to begin because it's a fairly uh, simple and programmatic work. It shows human life in beautiful genre scenes as seven of the seven deadly sins. 
And it shows them all in this weirdly dizzying way as if they're around a globe of the earth, but they are also, as you may already see, as if things reflected in the, uh, in the white of a gigantic eye, E-Y-E. And at the center, you see God is the eye, is the owner of that eye. And, uh, Christ looks out at us, and the picture says, Kawe, Kawe, Deus, Widit, uh, 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 beware, beware, God sees, which means we think we see the image, but the image has already seen us, and probably it's damned us. So the idea also is that Bosch's work say, beware, danger here. These are dangerous pictures. These are pictures that you can't, uh, they, they judge you more than you judge them. But uh, the critic around 1560 understood that um, already quite cogently, and uh, he added, much to the consternation of art historians, a little aside in which he says there were a lot of works which have the signature of Hieronymus Bosch, like this one, the one he owned, but they aren't by Bosch at all. People were already faking his works from the moment they saw them. And so there's a whole world of counterfeit Bosches which were made by smoking the pictures so they looked old. So you have this already this uncertainty about which is a Bosch and which is a, not a Bosch, um, but uh, it's an uncertainty that continued even through to the uh, 2016 exhibitions in which an enormous amount of research was done on Bosch, but many of the attributions, though uh, scientifically grounded, remain elusive. Um, now we do know a bit about Bosch also through documentary evidence. Uh, in fact, we have a pretty good sense of who he was, where he came from, uh, and in fact, we learn a lot from uh, the document of his funeral uh, 500 years ago in August of 1516. We know that he was called not Hieronymus Bosch, but Hieronymus von Aachen, Aachen, Aachen. The cathedral town of Aachen is where he came from. Uh, he, he, it, about three generations before uh, Bosch arrived in the town of Sertogenbosch, uh, his forefathers came from Aachen, and he settled in Sertogenbosch, which is a wonderful uh, name of a t t uh, uh, city. It means literally the forest or wooded hunting grounds of the Dukes of Brabant, Sertogenbosch, Bosch, Wood, Sertogen. Uh, the genitive of uh, the the dukes. So he moves to this place. They they do the um, the forefathers, the great grandfather, and they probably moved to the Netherlands because in the Netherlands painting was at a new height. Uh, Bosch comes into a culture in which painting had undergone uh, one of its perhaps greatest revolutions, a revolution uh, embodied in the artist like Jan van Eyck where using the technique of painting, uh, oil-based uh, painting, uh, an artist like Van Eyck was able to reproduce, as it were, the visible world in a way that made the picture look like a mirror of the world around it. And it's into that highly competitive, extraordinary technology, uh, extraordinary craft of painting that uh, Hieronymus Bosch comes. And yet, of course, as we can already know, unlike this sort of truth to life that the tradition of Netherlandish painting was so famous for, Bosch does something different. It's almost like he's true to dreams or perhaps true to illusions. So it's a completely different twist on early Netherlandish painting. Bosch's ancestors uh, moved to this uh, town, Sertogenbosch, which uh, was a fairly lively uh, local uh, trade center with uh, the cloth trade at its um, core. And there, Bosch's father became a fairly well-established painter, a man by the name of Antonius, Anthony von Aiken. And um, Bosch then married a wealthy woman and became ever more uh, important in the city, moved into a house right there on the town square. And we know also from that document that he had powerful friends. There you can read all the monies spent on the funeral, which is all said at the bottom, from the friends of Hieronymus the painter, uh, and they gave one more stuber than was spent, so they were generous for his funeral. So who were these friends? Well, these friends were amongst the most illustrious, learned, and powerful men in Europe. 
There used to be an idea that Bosch was some kind of mad uh, scientist working in the backwaters of Northern Europe, and in fact, he was patronized and uh, by and friends with the rich and powerful, in fact, the, the, the noble, the, the upper echelon of European society. And the uh, friends that are, are referred to in that document are in fact members of a confraternity, a kind of lay brotherhood, uh, devoted to the uh, cultivation of a particular uh, statue of the Virgin kept in this cathedral. They were called, it was called the Confraternity of Our Dear Lady of Sertogenbos. And here is the beautiful statue adorned and still surviving in the church. And to this club belonged about 10,000 wealthy individuals uh, and uh, a, a core of a handful of so-called sworn brothers who were the kind of center of the center, and Bosch was one of those. So he was at the center of this, think of a kind of rotary club, except even more wealthy, to which belonged Philip the Fair, the uh, founder of the Habsburg dynasty in his marriage to uh, uh, Joanna of Castile, uh, as well as all the great nobles of the uh, era. Uh, uh, Joanna of Castile was reputed to have been mad, and so there are sort of interesting things about how she understood uh, Hieronymus Bosch, but I'll leave that aside and stick with Philip the Fair. Uh, and in his uh, uh, books of accounting was found a very interesting note where it's said that he pay, prepaid Bosch for a last judgment, quote, for his noble pleasure for his noble pleasure. So that little bit of information tells us that these works were for pleasure too. And maybe it's just a formula, but it's also true that these works for, were uh, uh, for pleasure. Beyond that, what else Bosch's works were made for remains rather obscure. But the good news is there aren't all that many uh, enigmas in Bosch's art. And for one thing, he really uh, is an artist who sticks with Christian subjects for the most part. The Christian subjects being representations of Christ, representations of the saints, and some representations of the Virgin Mary, although surprisingly few given the fact that uh, he belonged to this brotherhood dedicated to the Virgin, but that's a sort of open question. But there are differences. And one difference is that the saints, for example, which he represents, tend not to be those associated with great heroic martyrdoms, or nor does he represent them in a moment of frenzied or heroic action. He represents the contemplative saints, and particularly the saints who withdraw from the world into the desert to, uh, to exemplify a kind of internal piety, like Saint Jerome, the artist's namesaint, right? Hieronymus Bosch, Jerome Bosch. So that's his namesaint who's withdrawn from the world as if already burying himself like a cadaver in the soil. And here is one of his most famous pictures. He made many paintings of uh, the temptation of Saint Anthony. You'll remember that his father was called Anthony. So it's got that family relation. But um, more importantly, this subject the Temptation of St. Anthony, the story of the Ur, the first hermit saint who leaves the world of riches to uh, pray by himself in the desert, but then so infuriates the demons by his activity that they torment him and try to seduce him and tempt him. This scenario of a saint turning from the world but then being attacked by the demonic became for Bosch a kind of signature motif. It enabled him to represent a world completely cosmically filled with almost nothing but demons. And it gave him the opportunity to invent and rethink and, uh, and play with pictorial form by trying to represent all these demonic creatures which are half illusory, half we, uh, real and that uh, bother him at his, uh, at his devotion. So already now it's a Christian painting, Ur Christian saint, but it's not necessarily what we always expect from Christian art because the Godhead, the d divine, 
is certainly less in evidence than it is in other pictures uh, of Christian art at the period. For example, Jan van Eyck's representation of a donor in a kind of strange one-on-one -on -one dialogue with the Virgin and Christ. This is not the kind of picture that Hieronymus Bosch uh, picked, uh, paints. He uh, paints something very different, uh, something in which already Christ at birth is surrounded by demonic as well as hostile forces. Here, very traditional subject. Thousands of these were made in the north of, northern part of Europe. The story of the adoration of the Magi it was always an excuse for exotic uh, costumes and exotic gifts. It was particularly interesting in the northern part of Europe because their trade with the New World was burgeoning, and so the idea of these magi coming from all over the world bringing strange gifts was was uh, interesting. But what Bosch does is he takes the scene and fills it with all sorts of uncanny, inscrutable details. For example, already uh, to the right of the Virgin, some shepherd is peering rather hostilely through that little uh, bit of broken uh, of, of the tear in the ruined uh, manger and, uh, and the, the odd profile of the donkey or the ass who represents, by the way, synagogue in the mythology, pressing its way towards Christ. But most famously, who is that figure in the doorway? Uh, it's uh, much ink has been spilled. Uh, it prob he probably represents uh, Antichrist, but I consider him a deliberately inscrutable enemy. And we know that there's a lot of enmity in this picture because if you can see at the upper left and upper right, the armies of the two, uh, the two absolute foes of Christendom around 1500 have mustered. They might be clashing, they might be joining. They are the Turks and the Tartars, uh, the Ottoman Turks uh, about to uh, um, besiege uh, Vienna as they do in, in 1527. Uh, the Tartars uh, always a feared group. Here they're coming together. So it's a world surrounded by, um, by enemies already at Christ's birth. By the way, the Holy Land was under Islamic occupation. This must have been in, uh, in uh, Bosch's mind. But the present moment is equally haunted. Here is a scene of uh, ordinary church service, uh, the liturgical, you could say, moment of Christ's presence in the world. But uh, Bosch represents it in a very strange way. It's a, it's a legend about the Pope, uh, Pope Gregory, who, when he was saying Mass, and holding up the Eucharistic wafer was heard through the uh, church a laugh. And the laugh came from, according to one of the best of these legends, came from a, the woman who had baked the bread. She knew it, of course, she made it, so it's not the body of Christ. And at the moment in which uh, the laugh occurs, the doubting laugh, suddenly Christ appeared at the altar. And uh, Gregory had an image made of, of this uh, miraculous appearance. So that's the most full presence of Christ that one can have. But already here, it's Christ surrounded by unbelievers, by possible heretics. And if you look into the picture further, um, in this strange, uncanny backdrop, you see a, a completely unusual representation of the crucifixion in which Christ dies, and at that very moment, Judas has committed suicide and his soul is being taken, uh, dragged off to hell. So this world of enemies, this world of an us against them, uh, a world in which the us against which the them is coming is, is always uh, in a state of, of victimization, uh, is the kind of quintessential, I would call it, matrix of Bosch's art, that enmity, Hatred is the matrix of his art. Here, uh, a work which is now disputed, whether it's by Bosch or by a follower or an imitation of Bosch, but it's extraordinary Boschian picture of Christ carrying the cross engulfed by evildoers whose evil are, is uh, flagged by their ugliness. And the hostility of Bosch's pictures aren't simply the hostility that enemies have uh, bad enemies, bad people, uh, have for good people. It's also the hostility, the reciprocal hostility that God has for the bad people and possibly God has for us. So uh, Bosch's Last Judgment, we'll look at it again in a bit, but Bosch's Last Judgment is unique in that there's almost no saved people represented. 
You have to get on a ladder look up and look at it with a magnifying glass to see the tiny little groups of the last saved, which raises the question, where does it leave us? Uh, I think the answer is it leaves us only with the pleasure of looking at other people suffer, which is sort of a, a pleasure in and of itself, but it doesn't give us very much hope that we're going to enter those pearly gates. It's rather the pleasure of watching other people's pain uh, is somewhat uh, the... the um, situation here. Now, Bosch didn't invent what I would call a siege mentality. He was just better than anyone else at uh, capturing what a wider public felt prevailed in the world at that time. Historians have debated the nature and causes of this era of fear uh, that stretches back about 500 years before the Reformation. Uh, and that turned its nebulous anxieties into finding and punishing enemies, both real and imaginary. Uh, on a, on a, a metaphysical level, there was the old, the old enemy, Satan, whose rebellion in heaven God crushed. And you can see here Bosch's version of that primordial event with the rebel angels falling like poisoned insects from the sky above Eden, making Adam and Eve's trespass in um, a, just an episode in a continuing struggle between God and the first enemy, Satan. Meanwhile, back on Earth, there were perennial enemies, the Jews, for example, purported Christ killers, host desecrators, and child murderers. They remained perpetual enemies whose nefarious crimes artists fictively imagined. And here you see the Ecce Homo by Bosch, in which he's showing the moment in which uh, the, um, the Jews ask for Christ uh, uh, to be crucified. But on a geopolitical level, and, uh, and Bosch includes that as well, the enemies also included absolute foes, political foes, like the Ottoman Turks. And you can see a muster of, um, uh, of allies of, uh, the, is, of the Ottomans have gathered around a church uh, or uh, some structure in the distance so that there's a sense this is what happened to Christ now. Now they're mustering in uh, Jerusalem because Jerusalem is captured by Islam. So it's this sort of ever-present world of enmity. But enemies lurk nearby uh, as well in the hearth and home. In uh, war and hard times, floods of refugees wandered, peddled, and begged their way through Europe. And in the Netherlands of Bosch's time, uh, such itinerants came to be vilified uh, as belonging to a secret order uh, with its own arcane rules and cryptic symbolisms and inverted honor codes and operating through deception and bent on destruction. Uh, and here you see a best-selling book, The Book of Vagabonds, which claims to capture this conspiracy in all its forms, and they include a glossary of the cryptolect or cant um, used among uh, rogues and thieves and, and their accomplices. So Bosch specializes in this hostile imagery and in portraying enemy uh, communications, he might have drawn inspiration from signs like these ones, these bad signs, which purport to be the marks that arsonists give when they want to mark out a house for destruction. An arsonist mark is, uh, is illegible to the victim, uh, but they carry a me message to the perpetrator. They tell which house or farm should be burnt, when and how. And these are all crafty illusionists, uh, it was believed, and they were banding together in an unholy alliance uh, with sorcerers, werewolves, and especially witches, those mainly female malefactors who caused crop failure, hailstorms, stillbirth, and most alarmingly for the male public, male impotence by consorting with the devil. Artists not only portrayed enemies, they created them. And this fabulous woodcut by Hans Baldwin Green spread throughout Europe the vivid, cunningly unfathomable, and destructive fantasy of the witch's Sabbath. I mean, our Halloween really begins with this woodcut of witches riding on broomsticks. And once having beheld this print and observed with their own eyes what witches secretly do, and of course it's all a fantasy, Inquisitors could shape their questions around the fabricated facts of a picture like this and then pose the questions to victims and under brutal uh, torture 
to the poor accused, and they would elicit from them confessions of crimes evidenced only by a print like Baldung's. So being expert in enemies, some artists play dangerously with the possibility that, that given the special knowledge they have of, of enemies, they might be hostile agents themselves. And in the last year of his life, Hans Baldung Green made the strange woodcut. And it's, uh, it's got some terrifying details in the background, the witch and the wild horse, maybe a mare in heat. These were his signature motifs, but he also includes uh, his own coat of arms, the artist's coat of arms, which is that unicorn on the, uh, back, in the background. And he lays down his initials, HB, Hans Baldung, in the foreground, uh, uh, in a kind of echo of the, of the figure who lies flat on the picture plane. And we know from portraits uh, of Hans Baldung Green that it's a self-portrait of the artist. So it shows the artist toppled by the very evil things that he represents. Uh, historians of Renaissance art uh, tend to imagine that artists should celebrate themselves in their works. Uh, but artists of the period sometimes do the opposite. They confess to being part of the problem, uh, that their knowledge of evil is such that uh, it makes them ambivalent on uncanny creatures themselves. And I think it's this uh, that we can see in uh, Bosch's Tree Man, but I'll get to that again in a little bit. Now, back to our story about the late medieval culture of fear, it's important to remember that a year after Bosch's death in 1516, something cataclysmic really did happen in Europe, and it wasn't a cosmic change, it was a change to history. Uh, we celebrated that event, uh, or we remembered it at least, uh, last year. Uh, in 1517, Luther uh, affixed to the door of the castle church his revolutionary 95 theses against uh, papal indulgences. We now know that he probably didn't hammer them. Uh, it's a myth that came about in the 19th century. It just seems better that he can boom, boom, boom. He probably fixed them to the door. We learn, a friend of mine actually pretty much nailed this <laughs> figuratively. He fixed them with wax to the, um, the door. But it did turn the world upside down. And in fact, artists were good at showing how the radical the change was to the established order that Luther brought about. This is a very early polemical woodcut book which juxtaposes the representation of the Pope and his, his pomp and his love of worldly things to the poverty and suffering of Christ so that everything happens that happens to the Pope becomes uh, a kind of horrible image of the way the Pope's um, uh, life is constantly an affliction to Christ, that, uh, that, uh, and that, in fact, the Pope is the Antichrist, as the title of the book portrays. The passion of Christ and of Antichrist, uh, the Pope as Antichrist. And Bosch's images were used by Reformation uh, artists to depict the papal monstrosities. Here, a, a woodcut, a, a satire of indulgence, is clearly utilizing the hybrid creature, the colossal creature, with a, a kind of brothel in the mouth of this fabulous beast, just like uh, Bosch's tree man, in order to vilify this new enemy, which was not an enemy someplace out there at the edge of town or further off. It could be the enemy that's right next door as the confessional uh, uh, enmities rose in, uh, especially in Germany, <coughs> between uh, Protestants and Catholics. Counter images of Protestants were then produced again in a, in a uh, kind of Boschian mode. Here's a seven-headed Luther, uh, and you can see that it means that Luther is a monster. He reads the Bible but he speaks in seven different tongues, and one of them is the worst of all, the enthusiasts. Do you see the one with the, the flies buzzing around the head? And the enthusiast reminds us of that representation of Hieronymus Bosch with his monsters around his head. The idea of a kind of insanity uh, is something that uh, was then attributed to Luther, but the, the art itself reaches back to the art of Hieronymus Bosch. In this period, not only then were there image of the, images of the enemy, the enemy confession, the old enemies, but the image itself 
visual images, paintings, sculpture, all those beautiful things that had once filled the churches of uh, Europe, those images themselves became the enemy to certain radical strands of Protestantism uh, as uh, the idea of cleansing Christianity of its false idols became literalized in tearing down the statues that had been put up uh, before. And here you see an image of, uh, of iconoclasm, as it's called. The, the, the use of the word was to reach back, actually, to the Greek period and to say this is a, a destruction of icons, just like happened in the, in the, uh, in the Byzantine period. Uh, but there you see the images themselves become uh, enemies. Bosch, for reasons that are obviously purely accidental but make one think a lot, uh, died the year before Luther launched the Reformation. It made uh, us rather dizzy as art historians trying to, uh, trying to make sense of that, um, that transformation. But there's something deeply uh, uh, haunted with many Reformation ideas uh, about uh, Bosch's art. And uh, not least of all, even though he's a painter, there's a certain coy, perhaps uh, powerful critique of images within Bosch's own painting. So if we look more carefully at the temptation of St. Anthony, we see that he's, uh, he's uh, uh, moved into a ruined, uh, a ruined tomb. And on the outside of that ruined tomb, are paintings, fabulous, strange imagery, which we don't know whether they're paintings or relief sculpture, uh, but they represent uh, the idol of idols, the false god, the golden calf, um, the, the, the Ur uh, idol of the biblical story. And so it's as if Bosch is saying that um, uh, St. Anthony has climbed into this world of untruth which of course includes all the demons, and it makes us wonder, well, what about Bosch's art as a whole? <clears throat> is, he, is his art as illusory as the idols that he represents? It was that question that gave me what for me was a kind of key to understanding the most um, troubling of all of Bosch's images, uh, the work that goes sometimes by the name of the Garden of Delights. And it's almost now 502 years since Bosch's burial. And these, the revelers in his masterpiece are still pursuing their pleasures on that grassy plain. Chaotic at the edges, their activities form a perfect circle around their center. It's as if what drives them also binds them to the center by gravitational force. Time's arrow that goes from Eden to the city of hell seems here to bend until it's drawn into a circle and can't escape. And from this endless here and now, Bosch directs a host of eyes towards us, forcing the image individually on us. And there's another thing that keeps the work perpetually present and contemporary. It's one of the weirdest things about Bosch's art. Nothing in this painted world, neither the tents nor the towers nor the playthings, nothing bears a trace of human making. Whatever looks to be a tool, a dwelling, or a costume, everything that could count as culture turns out to be a natural formation. Even the edibles are raw, not cooked. And this confounds art historians. Bosch ingeniously gives us nothing in the image to date. He seems to have recognized that however hard we might have tried to, he might have tried to make it look timeless, a single artifact, one bit of apparel, would have looked of the artist's time rather than of our own. And so Bosch makes it impossible to fix the action and with it his own painting in history. But time is present at the edges. The triptych's outer port shutters, here you see them, portray day three of creation when God separated land from sea and caused the land to produce self-seeding plants. And these outer panels swing open uh, to the next beginning now happening on Earth in Eden. It's a moment never before imagined by a work of art. It's not yet the fall of Adam and Eve. It's not yet their marriage when God joins them hand in hand. And it's not even yet their meeting. Here, a medieval sculptor pictures it with our first parents rushing towards each other in mutual attraction. No, 
This moment is the nanosecond after Eve's creation from Adam's rib, when Adam opens his eyes from sleep and first beholds his mate. It's a momentous instance, because after Eve's creation, God's creative work stands complete. He can step back. Natural procreation is supposed to take over with plants, animals, and humans seeding themselves according to their kind. Now begins the human story that the Bible tells of trespass and expulsion and afterwards of history, which stretches from the past through the present into the awful future. Bosch urges us to think this way, to read the scene in terms of history. He uses the mobile structure of a triptych and he casts the exterior panels, the ones we saw as act one, implying that these interior panels are acts two, three, and four. And indeed in the, uh, the um, right panel of that open state, he displays the grim climax, hell, hell at the right, makes it hard not to read the triptych from left to right as showing a beginning, middle, and an end. And with paradise to the left and hell to the right, the picture also whispers last judgment, I think. And remember how Bosch imagined doomsday. Instead of the traditional gates of paradise to the left, he portrays an earthly paradise of Eden, collapsing the whole of human history into one terrible moment of divine decision, because judgment is already upon us. Uh, with the fall of Adam and Eve having occurred and the door to salvation, as we've seen, almost microscopic. But in his nameless masterpiece, God doesn't sit in judgment. And again, Adam and Eve's trespass, trespass hasn't yet occurred. So what is happening in Eden? So Adam is looking fixedly at Eve, as the Bible says, uh, shamelessly. Sees they are na naked but unashamed. But already with that first look, there's a lot of bad things going on. Things creeping out from the mud. It's supposed to be vegetarians. Everything's vegetarian, maybe gluten-free, but it's not. It's not. Uh, and then there's the blood involuntarily flushing Adam's cheeks. But what does looking accomplish? What happens when Adam looks? To glimpse the revolution now occurring, Bosch invites us, I think, to follow the vector of Adam's gaze. The men rotating around the pool of women act out the desire beginning with Adam's first look, and the sightline passes through Eve's downcast eyes to what appears to be Eve again now grasped at the wrist by an Adam lookalike. The couple in the pod further on enacts a next step before the visual re uh, vector reaches the counterclockwise circle. And there the circle is waylaid uh, and captured by that uh, counterclockwise dance, that march counterclockwise always means nefarious activities. Uh, and just there you see the, um, the uh, women at the center. And just as uh, Adam was caught by the beauty, the beauty of Eve with her golden locks, and it's painted with golden paint. So too, the women at the center of the fountain are, are uh, represented with these golden, golden locks. So that the fascination the image portrays gets repeated in the fascination the image causes. And so in the beginning, so too, at, as at the end, the vector of sight terminates in that vortex of the tree man, Bosch's signature motif. And he looks rearward over his ruined body and via the pleasures that ruined him back to Adam, whose facial features he shares. So the triptych tells a story. It's a story about desire. It begins before the fall in the vitality of pre and procreative nature. It travels through humanity, a humanity dehumanized by desire that burns itself out in hell. St. Augustine asked the million-dollar question, what is the origin of evil? And he answered, pride. Pride is the beginning of sin. And he explains that Eve loved herself. She asserted her rights, and she manipulated Adam's infatuation with her. And Adam loved his appetite for Eve and preferred her to the whole of God cre God's creation and therefore turned selfward as well. In the hell panel, Bosch visualizes this idea. He builds his personification of pride in the hell scene 
out of parts of Adam and Eve in the garden. But in Eden, hell breaks out before either of our parents could even begin to be prideful, to even begin to make a decision. We don't decide in Bosch's world. We're decided upon from the moment Adam ever set uh, eyes on Eve. So the picture looks at us, puts us at the center, and at first this order seems to belong to the world Bosch puts on display, but this isn't in fact the case. I'll conclude with one strange feature of the picture. The fountain pool and parade align along the picture's central axis, uh, but despite their wildly capricious shapes, and they flank a perfect center. Their symmetry receives support from outside, from the ensemble's framework as a triptych. But on closer inspection, nothing is ordered within this painted world. The tips of those distant towers only look aligned, but they're in fact protean, consisting of fragile pinnacles, birds in flight, etc. Their order is an order at one with the tunnel vision of our own desire, the trapped atom and that's trapped Bosch's viewers for a half a millennium. The brilliant colors of the central panel, unique in early Netherlandish art, cause us to behold the world as if idolatrously, as if we are looking with idolatrous eyes. He's a painter of enemies, of devils, of heretics, and Bosch shows what it looks like to look at the world through enemy eyes, and he reveals our enemy to be ourselves, uh, with darkness stuck inside of me, but there's something even worse. Bosch took his name from his hometown of Sertogenbos, which again means the Duke's Wood, but this vivid name also marks the artist as wild and obscure, like a forest, like a Bosch, like a boss. And in this drawing, as in the self-portrait, uh, as in the triptych, he casts himself as an infernal tree man, Again, such portraits puzzle art historians who expect artists to celebrate themselves, but they're again common in the period, and they belong to the sense of a state of siege, and in this state the self is under attack, not only by hostile outsiders, but more dangerously from within. The ego is the enemy, but it's also the hero, and this particular ego that called itself Hieronymus Bosch has kept us wondering about the enigmas he has made for 500 years. And I want to conclude with another, I think, self-portrait of the artist, which is uh, very fitting for this space because it represents a strange uh, a cryptic um, saying about how the trees, the wood has ears and the field has eyes. It's a world, a kind of paranoid world, but it's also, again, the motif of the tree and the motif of the owl. And in uh, Dutch, Owls were sometimes called Bosvogel, uh, forest birds, and Bosch himself is a Bosvogel. And you'll remember that the owl is also the attribute of Athena, and we're in the Athenaeum. And therefore, <laughs> one wonders, is this the owl of Athena, or is this the owl of witchcraft, of the demon, of the enemy? Is it a friend or an enemy? And to this day, art historians don't know the answer to that question. So I'll leave you with that and entertain any questions you may have. <laughs>